Welcome to the Misfit Stars Podcast. I'm Shannon Curtis. And I'm Jamie Hill. Hi, listeners. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. It's so nice to be here on the podcast with you today. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a warm welcome for Shannon on the Misfit Stars Podcast today. You too. You too, honey. What a, what a nice thing to be here with you. It's just great. <laughs> Later on in this episode, people, we're going to be continuing our discussion on individualism. It's a fountain that keeps giving. And taking. And Um, taking. (laughs) Which is sort of what we're going to be exploring later. This week, we're going to be talking specifically about how individualism is employed in service of and in tandem with racism. Oh my gosh, totally. It's a real, it's like a dynamic duo. It's a twofer. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, all, it's all bad, but we'll, we'll break it up. <laughs> break it down, whatever. I wish we could break it up. We'll break it down. <laughs> We're or, breaking it down by breaking it up. Breaking it up by breaking it down. Never maybe. mind. Can, continue. What Mo- is Misfit Stars? Jamie? Moving forward. Yeah. Misfit Stars is how our people support the work that we do. This is a mini advertisement, listeners. Mm. Here's the deal. Shannon and I are a married pair of working artists. And Whoa. how we do the work that we do has dramatically changed in the time of COVID-19. Uh-huh. You might have sort of noticed that we haven't been able to tour for the last two touring seasons now yeah. because there's this virus and it's everywhere in unequal but alarming amounts and we can't safely gather groups of people. We haven't been able to. Who knows when we will be able to? I'd like to think that things are improving, but that's what we thought last year. So at this point, I'm not really like getting too cocky. Oh man. I don't feel like I'm taking a lot for granted. We have figured out a different way to support ourselves. And it's great because we're still living indoors because of it and (laughs) eating food regularly. And that's great. I feel really, really fortunate. Like no joking around. We know people who have not been that lucky through this pandemic. We've been real lucky. The reason that we have been lucky is because we have this community of people who appreciate the work that we put into the world. If you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, you are by definition one of them. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that we do and you're listening to it because presumably you appreciate it. Thank you. You could be hate listening. That would be weird. You know, maybe just hit stop, you know, go listen to something you like. Uh, We won't be offended. We won't know. But in all seriousness, we need support from people who believe in what we do to continue this living indoors and eating food thing that we've grown so accustomed to. Right, right. And it doesn't have to be like huge amounts of support either. Like we're talking the the entry level uh, is five bucks a month. So it's like literally like you, would you miss $5 a month? If this is something that you value, that you get something from in your life that this this podcast or the work that we do more generally, um, would would that be worth $5 a month to you to continue to support, to see it continue? Do you know how many cents that is a day? How many cents? Round up, it's 17 cents a day. Wow. I know. It's 16.66 repeating, but let's just say <laughs> 17 cents a day. We pr- we made the support mechanism for what we do very accessible on purpose because we don't want it to be the kind of thing, like with so many things in the world, where a few rich people support it, and so everything kind of gets skewed toward their likes and their preferences, and it just gets weird for everybody involved. Mm. We do a community-oriented thing, mm-hmm. and it's really important to us that just people in our community, regular, normal people, not rich people, be able to engage with the work that we do and have a little bit of ownership in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to us. And, you know, there are a few people who do like a hundred, there's one person who does 150 bucks a month. Wow. That's remarkable to me. That feels rich to me. And congratulations. Thank you, rich person for supporting us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We're so grateful. But honestly, it's mostly $10. That's mostly what people do on average a Mm -hmm. month. And we have aggregated this 
$10 a month support from enough people that it makes a meaningful offset to our bills <laughs> and we can get by, you know? Yeah, and we can also turn around some of our time and a lot of our time and effort to uh, paying it forward to other people. Yeah. You do a ton of mentorship yeah. and uh, even production and mixing work sometimes for free or, yeah. or sometimes at low cost for yeah. other artists I'm doing who've, been ju- who've been affected by this time. I was right before we started recording this podcast uh, finishing up the last little tweaks on a mastering project I'm doing at a deeply discounted rate uh-huh. for an independent artist I believe in because I'm supported in good measure now by the Misfit Stars group. Right. And I take that support and I pay it forward to yeah. other artists I believe in. It's something we do a lot. It's wonderful. So your support of us via joining Misfit Stars supports us, but mm-hmm. also it enables us to turn that support around and help other people too. So it's like a, a win-win, pay it forward kind of scenario. And God it, damn, this is so compelling. Yeah. <laughs> this is so good. Like if I weren't the person involved, I would be going to misfitstars.com slash support right now if it weren't for me. That's how much I believe in what you just said, Misfit Shannon. Misfit stars.com slash support. That's how you get in on this. And we are so grateful uh, to all of our supporters. And we would be so grateful to you, new supporter. New supporter who's listening right now and being convinced by these words that we're speaking uh, into your ear holes that you want to become part of Misfit Stars. I have just a little small challenge. What? For someone who's listening right now, I know that there are people who listen to this podcast every single week, like mm-hmm. you've subscribed to it. By the way, like Thank and you. subscribe. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. uh, you subscribe to it. It comes up in your feed every Wednesday. You listen to it and you've not yet become a supporting member. Uh-huh. I know that there's somebody who's hearing my voice right now who I am describing. Yeah. You listen to the podcast every week. You get something valuable out of it. You haven't yet thrown your support behind us. And what's your challenge? My to that challenge person? is maybe change that this week. Maybe maybe let this be the week where you're like, you know what? Yes, I do believe in what Shannon and Jamie are doing. Or I've been meaning to do this, and so maybe this is the week I actually do it. Yeah. Misfitstars.com slash support. That would be so wonderful. Excellent. We would be grateful. Yes. That's the end of the ad. Thanks, people. All right. So uh, do we have any announcements? Announcements, announcements, announcements. That yeah. sounds like yes. Yeah. Um, that was jaunty. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, first announcement is uh, just a repeat of one of our announcements from last week mm. that we are we have uh, started the process of watching and reading for our fall Misfit Stars anti-racist book and movie club. Uh, we've got a movie that we've picked and a book that we've picked. We've got dates uh, and Zoom. Uh, meetings scheduled for discussions in September, October, and November. I like how it's sort of a quarterly thing all of a sudden. All of a sudden, that's kind of what it's turning it's into. It's like the fall Misfit Stars Anti-Racist Book and Movie Club. I know. It's really like good. It. It's sort of like accidentally morphed into that. But we're watching uh, 13th by Ava DuVernay. It's a mm. documentary about mass incarceration and its history uh, tied to slavery in the United States. Rooted in the 13th Amendment. Yes. And then we're reading uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. The foundational work, really. It's really great. So I read. It's the book. not foundational necessarily, well, but it's like the masterwork. It's it's really um, yeah yeah. I, I read the book last summer, and I'm looking forward to rereading it, and also getting a chance to actually talk about it with people because mm. I didn't have that opportunity last year when I read it. You talked uh, with me some, but it's different. It's better to talk in a group. Yeah yeah for sure. Yeah. So um, so yeah, the Misfit Stars Anti-Racist Book and Movie Club. Here's how you uh, become part of the Book and Movie Club. First of all, you got to be part of Misfit Stars. So 
misfitstars.com slash join or slash support. Yeah. Either way works. Yep. Uh, you become mis- part of Misfit Stars. We will invite you into our uh, uh, our Misfit Stars private social network, mm-hmm. which is awesome all on its own. It's really lovely. With- it's just like really calm and supportive. Yeah. And people share stuff and they can do so knowing that it's just like a safe space and no one will be a dickhead. Yeah. Which is so valuable it right is now. So great. Uh, and also a great place, a great venue in which to do this anti-racist work. Yeah. Uh, you kind of need with, a dickhead free space to do that work. You definitely do. So within the social network, there is a private space just for people who have opted into the book and movie club. So when you get into Misfit Stars and you get into the social network, if you're not yet in the anti-racist book and movie club, just send one of us a message in the social network or an email, Shannon at MisfitStars.com. Jamie at at MisfitStars.com and just ask to be invited. And so once you're in that space, then you'll get the the links to where you can um, watch the movie for free, Mm -hmm. uh, where you, uh, links to ideas about where you can get this book um, uh, and also then the the dates and times and links for our Zoom discussions. One of the people in our Misfit Stars group who lives in Oregon last weekend sought out the single and only black-owned bookstore in the entirety of the state of Oregon, and she went there to purchase her Ibram Candy book. Right. She found the store because of the link that I had sent her about where to buy books at black-owned bookstores. You can do that sort of thing. Yeah. So get yourself in the group, misfitstars.com slash join. That's how you do that. Excellent. And then just ask one of us to get into the club. Yeah. Okay, what's our second announcement, Jamie? I have an announcement. What is it? It's that we have a Misfit Stars Zoom meetup happening this coming weekend. We do. It is happening this coming Sunday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. UK, or 8 a.m. Monday in Australia. (laughs) I like that you covered all the bases. just want everyone to be thought of here. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's feasible in all of those time zones. That's a pretty yeah. pretty good, robust time to schedule it for. I suppose if you're like headed to work on Monday morning in Australia, it might be tough yeah. to actually come to this meetup. But we're doing our best to try to be as inclusive of the worldwide population of Misfit Stars as we can. Also, it's like one day a month. You could call in sick. <laughs> like, what would you be rather? What would you rather be doing on like a Monday morning? Going to work on a Monday? Thumbs down. Yeah, right. Or getting on an amazing Zoom with a whole bunch of Misfit Stars from all over the world? Thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. So our Zoom meetup is just that. It's it, it's we're on the Zoom uh, link or in the Zoom meeting for about three hours usually. Uh, so this will be starting at three p.m. Pacific time and going until six p.m. Pacific time, mm-hmm. um, roughly. And there's no agenda. It's just a time for Misfit Stars to come together, talk, get to know each other, share what's been going on in our lives, uh, hopefully have some laughs. That usually happens. Um, there's usually a two-year-old that shows up who makes us all smile and laugh, and Aww. that's great. Um, her mom is a Misfit Star. <laughs> she got herself in somehow. She's been yeah. on the Zoom. She's doing great. <laughs> these kids these days. Really advanced with the computers. Yeah. So um, so really, you can come whenever... Like, you're not required to be there for the whole three hours for this. Like, show up when you can. Leave when you need to. That's, That's true. That's totally fine. Some of the stuff we do, we need you to show up on time. Like the like the anti-racist book and movie club. You kind of, for that one, got to show up at the beginning. Yeah. You can't show up halfway through and be like, hey, I'm here. Let me just say all my ideas, which somebody else said over the last 45 yeah. minutes. <laughs> totally. That wouldn't work. But for this, you can just drop in. Yeah. So absolutely. if you know if you're busy at three, but your schedule frees up at four fifteen, we'll come on by. Yeah, totally. So we hope we will see you there. Also, if you need to know uh, how to 
join that Zoom meetup. Uh, there's an event in the private social network. Mm-hmm. You can find the link there. Um, and I've also sent out a, a Misfit Stars transmissions newsletter to everybody with the link as well. Woo-hoo. So there you go. Uh, Jamie, yes. how are you feeling? <sighs> Thanks for asking, Shannon. You know, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> um, generally pretty all right. Uh-huh. Uh, but also, I don't know, like I'm in a transitional space this week. Uh, you know, you and yeah. I just did a big push, uh, to try to wrap up as much work as possible on my end and get you all prepared on your end for this festival that we, uh, that we were supposed to play this last weekend. Dun, dun, dun. Like right after we released last week's podcast episode, uh, people what happened is that that festival got canceled for covid concerns yeah and that's just the way things are going right Mm -hmm. now i just read a shocking list this morning of artists who have canceled full-on fall tours over the last week i mean it's ridiculous big big tours big 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 tours i mean so many of them i should just pull up the list so you can see what it is because it's just nuts so uh here are the people who canceled tours over the last week. BTS, Garth Brooks, Stevie Nicks, Florida Georgia Line, Nine Inch Nails, Neil Young, and the Pixies. These are all huge acts. Yeah. And this huge, is what huge, you're getting in your acts. newsletter that you got this information from. I mean, imagine all the other indie bands that aren't getting written up about who. Yeah, the non-famous band, just the working artists. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, not to mention, especially on these bigger tours, it's not just those artists that are... Can't, I mean, they have They tour with an entourage of of sound people and lighting people and stage people and like yeah. all production of the- managers and stage managers and tour managers and assistants. And it's just like, it's a really unbelievable, like a tour of the size of like a Garth Brooks or nine inch nails tour can easily employ a hundred people with well-paid work for typically three months. You know what I mean? Right. Like you can live off of what you make on one or two of those tours for an entire year. Which That's is how I used to work right. when I was touring. I would do like two, three month long tours a year and it would support me and also you for the rest of the right, year. which is the sustainable, like you can't just stay on tour year round. Like your body yeah. and your mind can't handle no. that. Like you need to be able to come home and tend to your life and your relationships yeah. and things yeah. like that. So like it's, yeah, it, it's the kind of thing, like I just am thinking about all those people who are suddenly not going to be working yeah. this fall. I know, me too. Yeah. I mean, that list that I just read off probably accounts for, I don't know, somewhere Several. around a thousand uh, really well-paying jobs for people in the music industry who who have been suffering. And again, and not- also like federal unemployment benefits are running out like in, in like two weeks. Right, right. Meaning that any like hanging on that these people were doing, like they were, I think we're really hoping to get back to tour this fall once unemployment benefits run out. Well, yeah. now unemployment benefits are running out. Tours are being canceled. Yeah. It's just a really, really yeah. rough situation. Yeah, a lot of folks. Okay, so you were saying about how you're feeling. Oh yeah, right. My goodness, we got <laughs> far afield there. Because our show is canceled. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so we did all this work, all this push to sort of, you know, get everything done that we had to get done. We were so prepared for the show; it didn't end up happening, but still, we did all the preparation for it. And then, like, we had the release of okay, this time period is done as of Saturday. Yeah. And then I always have a feeling like when I get to places like that, inflection points like that in my life, where mm-hmm. it just feels like I have stepped off a cliff and I am in free fall. Yeah. And I'm just there right now. Uh, and it's uncomfortable. It's just, yeah, it is. Like, I'm not fully settled into, like, 
any kind of a vacation routine. Um, also, I still have some lingering little things I have to kind of wrap up for people in a time-sensitive way. You yeah. know? It's nothing bad, uh, and it's stuff I enjoy, but also I can't just fully check out, you know? Yeah. Uh, I need to make a plan for when I can fully check out, and I need to just let people know. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, I, I just started a new mentorship thing with this young woman. And so like, I'm feeling conflicted about that because I don't want to like ramp her all up like I have done and then be like, okay, now that you're totally ramped up and stoked, I'm going to be gone for about a month. But I may need to do that. So I got to figure that out. And I feel a or little bit of- Or at least for eh, a couple of weeks. You know what that. I mean? Like some, just some boundaries around you time. Because I know you. you, you allow other people's needs to seep in and take away the time yeah. that you need for yourself. It's true. I do. Uh, I'm overly empathic in that way. And, you know, that's good, but also bad. So I got to kind of square that circle. Got to get that figured out. Um, This is all to say that, you know, I'm fine, but I just feel a little in transition slash rudderless. Uh, It's making me feel lightly anxious, but like nothing bad, nothing I can't handle. Nothing's really like bringing me down, but Mm -hmm. like I just, I've got things swirling around. Yeah. I guess that's how I'd say it, you mm-hmm. know? I'm just in the middle of stuff. It's complicated. Yeah, I understand. So that's kind of where I'm at. So yeah. how are you? How are you feeling? I, I, I relate to, what, to where you're at. Um, when the festival was canceled last week, uh, it's funny, I, neither of us had really spoken the words out loud, but I think we had both thought mm-hmm. in the weeks previous, like, I wonder if this festival is actually going to happen you know, regarding yeah. COVID, you know, and whether they would have to pull the plug on it because of COVID. Yeah. And so in that regard, because I had, had sort of had that thought in the back of my mind, I wasn't shocked that it was canceled. No. When you you got the phone call and you delivered the news to me, I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, like- there, That, that it was, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think they made a good call, you know, like especially in the days since just seeing- the rising case numbers in the area where the festival is going to be happening, just the rising case, like the Northwest is kind of being hit pretty hard right now. The Northwest, COVID. like Oregon and Washington right now is the number two COVID hotspot in the nation. That's wild. Which is just wild. Our county, Pierce County, had its, uh, one has had, had one of its highest new infection rates of the entire pandemic, like, this week. This weekend, yeah. It's just wild. Yeah, so, you know, I think they made the right call, and so I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that, you know, the folks in charge were, you know, being responsible about it and all that. Yeah. And, you know, there was a big part of me that was, that, there was a big part of me that was, I was really looking forward to doing this show. Like, mm-hmm. I really had a lot of fun preparing it, and I was, yeah. you know, looking forward to that. So on some level, I was disappointed, um, but I, but emotionally speaking, I felt pretty flat about it. And I, I wrote a bit about this and shared it on, uh, in a newsletter, a love letter, Shannon Curtis love letter, and also uh, within our Misfit Stars group and on social media and stuff. Just kind of a, like, a, I was, I was like taking a step back and observing my lack of emotions around that and wondering what <laughs> that was all about, <laughs> you know? And I think that, you know, uh, what I came up with was, you know, this could be evidence of sort of, you know, a, a, a buildup of resilience, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that maybe this is just what resilience looks like. Um, there's also an element that I wondered if maybe part of this is just kind of numbness <laughs> as a sort of reaction to sort of the the generalized trauma of the last year and a half. Yeah, right. Um, I think that there's probably 
validity to the idea that, that both are part of that experience for me. Um, a good friend of mine uh, uh, commented on a social media post that that she thinks that this is uh, uh, an idea, a, a evidence of sort of accepting impermanence. Mm. And I think that that's, yeah. that really speaks to me also, you know, especially as we've been grieving the loss of our friend Scott over the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've been sitting with the idea of impermanence a lot in that grief process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then, you know, zooming out further and just looking at the, like the last year and a half, I feel like it's been lesson after lesson of impermanence totally. in this time, like not really being able to count on, on anything to <laughs> like this idea. And, and, and maybe that's all right. Like maybe this is okay to be training the muscles of my, of my mind uh, to to hold things lightly, mm-hmm. you know, to hold things with an open hand, to not build too many expectations around things, not as a defense mechanism, because I don't, I don't want to engage in that activity, like that holding loosely, as a way of of uh, protecting myself against the feeling of vulnerability in a time of uncertainty. Right. That doesn't feel right or healthy or good. No. But it's this balance between uh, holding things with an open hand and also remaining open mm-hmm. and remaining vulnerable. Uh, so it's it's a it's a strange place. I, I feel like this is a this time has really been an exercise in in figuring out how to accept um, impermanence. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- th- this is this is a history of my feelings over the last week, but like where I am right now, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I, I relate to where you are in that free fall. You know, I, <laughs> I feel a little bit rudderless, mm-hmm. a little bit, uh, okay, like what's my purpose? I do have a couple of things that I, I need to do. I need to check off my, my list. I've got uh, a personal song that's mostly written that I need to finish for a family that is going to be memorializing um, a loved one in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's actually a lovely situation. They're going to be celebrating. Uh, she, this woman passed away at the age of 99 last October. Mm. And so they're celebrating her life on what would have been her 100th birthday. Aww. I know. It's really lovely. And I get to write a song in honor of this woman. I mean, and it's mostly, like I said, mostly written at this point. Um, but I need to finish that. And that will feel good to get to get that done. Um, it's been fun to work on it thus far. Um, but... So I have a couple of things like that 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 you know I need to finish I need to wrap up but I feel just sort of like more generally a little bit rudderless and that feels strange. Um I I know that I need to not get myself involved in the next thing yeah. right now like I know that I need that. Yep. I know that I need to be like okay this is the end of a period and I need to pause for a moment like I I know that my my brain needs that my spirit needs that like you know but I'm struggling with the in-betweenness of the time too. So, but also I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I, I like, I'm, I'm doing all right. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like dire. <laughs> yeah. just, that's just where I'm at. So anyway, there we go. Right on. Shall we fire up the good news machine? Let's take that puppy out for a little spin. Okay. What do you got? I've got some, uh, I've got some national uh, political news. Okay, great. Let's that hear I it. I thought was good news. Excellent. Which is that the Biden administration over this last week approved the, Biggest increase to food assistance benefits in the 
entire history of the SNAP program. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. So like, are they extending it to more people or are they giving larger benefits to the people who already... Larger benefits to the people who already qualify. Awesome. Well, that's great. It's wonderful. It just means that the people who need assistance the most are going to be getting more of it, which presumably will make their lives better. Yeah, absolutely. Less stressful. And that's so good. Yeah. It's going to lift a whole bunch of kids out of uh, uh, food insecurity situations. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, um, it's just really, really encouraging. Like, this is such a tangible like, effect of electing people who believe in the power of government to do good things for people, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. There's another faction in our national politics right now, which is a faction that would have you believe that government is the problem, that government is evil, that government only does bad things we need to get out of the way. Mm -mm. But then you see something like this, where there's a federal program, a program that can only be administered effectively on a federal level. That's what the federal government is for. It's for doing things that are too big for individual states or municipalities to tackle on their own. Right. From a financial perspective, yeah. right? Some yeah. stuff you need to deal with in a centralized kind of way. Yeah. This is a classic example of that kind of program. And this administration has just augmented this program to make it work better for and treat better the people whom it's benefiting. That's wonderful. It's just like this wonderful thing. It's so encouraging. It's good it's news. such good news. Yeah. So that's more like the great news machine, really. <laughs> Uh, what's in your good news machine? I have a national uh, a national politics-related good news <laughs> item also. Okay. And that is that last week, the education department uh, said that they're going to eliminate $5.8 billion in student debt Whoa. Uh, carried by more than 323,000 borrowers who have significant disabilities. Whoa. So this is wonderful. Like the, the federal government does... Ha- has the authority to eliminate student debt. And student debt, we've talked recently about this on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Like it has soared beyond <laughs> beyond fathomability. Beyond it's it, it has soared beyond like levels uh, uh, that people can actually feasibly pay back in their lifetimes. <laughs> and if you're talking about yeah. folks who have significant disabilities, I mean, they're, they already have stacked against them the, like, in order to, like, continue receiving disability uh, assistance, you have to earn, like, less money. Like, you, can, you can't earn over a certain amount of money. Right. To, and then you're disqualified from your disability benefits. Yeah. But you need to earn more money to pay back your student loans. And so like, it's just this whole catch-22 yeah. in this particular scenario that's just going to relieve a lot of people um, from just a lot of, of financial stress and financial pain and yeah. immobility in their lives because they've been strapped by this debt. So it's great news. Um, I would. It, this is good news. I would say that it will be great news when the education department uses its authority to cancel all of student debt because mm. that is something that has been floated and advocated for very strongly uh, ever since before the pandemic, but especially since the pandemic happened. That is one way that... Uh, that the, the the administration could, with the flick of a pen, radically change uh, the scene on like racial inequality, uh, uh, like uh, the wealth gap, the ra- racial wealth gap is what I meant to say. Yes. Um, and so like, and, and income inequality in general, mm-hmm. um, it's something that they could do. So this is good news 
and I'm hoping for great news <laughs> uh, as time goes on that they'll they'll, they'll expand this uh, power that they have uh, identified that they have to eliminate student debt. So when they quote unquote eliminate student debt, they don't literally just like sign something and like there's no debt it evaporates because like that's the functional outcome for the people who currently hold the debt, like the, 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 the people who have taken out the loans who have the student debt. Right. But what it actually means is that the federal government just takes $5.8 billion out of the treasury and pays off the loans themselves. Yep. Yeah, so everyone is made whole. So the people who made the loans are made whole, uh, mm -hmm. which is kind of great too, because like they don't have to worry about anybody defaulting on their loan. You know, anybody getting <laughs> themselves into like a job situation where like... I, I had to defer my student loans so many times in my 20s and yeah. early 30s because I would just get to points where it's like I would have a job transition and I just wouldn't be able to afford that extra monthly payment on my student yeah. loans. And fortunately, like you can defer it. It keeps accruing interest, well, but you don't have to make the monthly payments. Yeah. You end up paying more. That's the reason, though, that these lenders have been... Uh, lobbying against the forgiveness of student debt because what they really want is to continue to earn interest on these borrowers for decades to come. So, I mean, like, they will be, quote-unquote, losing money in this deal because they're not going to be able to, like, collect rapacious <laughs> interest from <laughs> these borrowers, you know, in for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is the just thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Um, like you said, everybody will be made whole. Yeah. <laughs> Just not 2x whole or whatever interest adds up to. Like when you add... Oh, like, more than that. Yeah it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. When you add up to interest, like on a on any given loan, if it, if that loan lasts long enough, the interest, I mean, like Shannon was saying, it can be two, three, four, five times mm -hmm. the amount of the loan that you took. Yeah. In interest. And right. it all kind of gets rolled in, just becomes this big monthly payment. You don't really think about it. But like if you add up all those monthlies, yeah. 20 years in, like you may have borrowed, you know, $40,000. You may have sent them $110,000. Oh, yeah, for sure. Easily. Easily. So anyway, that's good news. And I uh, don't personally benefit from that good news, but I am so glad for the people who will. You know what? Good news doesn't just have to be stuff that benefits us. Oh, I know. I know that some people, I say this because I know that some people, especially when it comes to the federal government doing good things for other people, have a, well, what's in it for me point of view, which I find kind of appalling just because like, what's in it for you? Were you raised in a barn? Like there's somebody <laughs> other than you in your life. My God, like what went wrong with the parenting in your family situation? What's in it for you is a happier, healthier, more stable society to yeah, live in. That's it. <laughs> That's it. There you go. You get to live in a nicer place. Now shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Monsters. My goodness. My goodness. So, uh, so yeah, this past week has been quite an adventure. Uh, there have been ups. There have been downs. It's been a veritable emotional roller coaster yeah. of the week is what it's been. So excited for this concert. Oh, my gosh. So prepared. Shanna had thought up the best show. I had gotten it sounding so goddamn good. Yep. And, and then, then no. that got canceled. Yeah. So we decided instead of uh, going to Astoria for the concert on Saturday, we decided that we would uh, take a trip down to Portland instead. Yeah. To still commemorate the day and do something fun on the day and have it be like a thing. Yeah, and there were a couple of misfit stars 
those members who had purchased tickets for the festival that had communicated to us, oh, can't wait to see you. I've got my ticket. And so we we just reached out to them. And we're like, hey, let's meet up. And so that that's one of the things we did in Portland on Saturday. It was great. It was beautiful weather. So we got to spend all day outdoors safely among other human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that was really great. It was a really good day. It was really nice. Yeah. It was just like an extended field trip and it had the feeling of like an adventure, which is the feeling that we were sort of hoping to have, you know, with a festival in a different way. It didn't scratch the itch completely, yeah. but it was a placeholder for an exciting fun day. Yeah. It was good. It worked we had, out. We had a good time. It was fun to do. Yeah. One of the things that we did last week, uh, well, it's been, it's a project that we started earlier in the summer and it got sort of aborted. I don't remember why it got aborted. Why did it it get aborted? It didn't get aborted because there it sits. I think abort is probably the wrong word. It got delayed. Postponed. Postponed. Paused. It It was was paused. It was on pause. Yeah. So we had started this backyard art project. And so we kind of dove right back into that when when the festival was canceled last week. It was good to like channel our energy towards something. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to tell everybody about your art project? Because really it's your project. I would love to. So when we inherited this house that we now live in, one of the things that we inherited was this like 1950s era TV antenna on a big tall metal pole attached to the fence line at the that separates sort of the front yard from the backyard. And we should say we didn't inherit this house; we bought this house. <laughs> You're true. saying it came with the purchase of the house. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Yeah, we did not get left this house in some kind of really cool will. I wish. No, we're paying on it monthly. Yeah. But we had the opportunity to move here and we inherited some things with the house because the people who sold it to us were moving into an in-law in their uh, kid's house. And so they didn't need to bring a bunch of stuff. So we inherited some things. Uh, and one of the things we inherited, not that they would necessarily have taken this, <laughs> was this TV antenna. Because who has a TV antenna in 2021? Nobody. Well, it turns out we do because we inherited it. But it's so beautiful. I mean... TV antennas. So first of all, for anyone under the age of 40, you used to just have to like put up an antenna on your house (laughs) to catch TV signals as they came through the air, not unlike radio, but with pictures. Yeah. We understand that that's changed now uh, for audio stuff as well as for video stuff. But they were beautiful. They were these sort of symmetrical, angular, futuristic looking metal devices. Yeah. And they... Uh, they always, when I was a kid, and this has persisted for me, looked like kind of like spaceships, uh-huh. like little spaceships okay. or like miniature aliens. It looks like the shape of a stealth bomber to me. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's exactly right. It yeah. has kind of like a plane look to it, uh-huh. but but abstracted enough that it could maybe be from outer space. That's where my mind always okay. went when uh-huh. I was like five, yeah. you know? Uh, and so- what we did is we took this antenna from where it was mounted, kind of stuck inside of a tree at this point. A tree had sort of right. grown up and around it. So I yeah. had to sort of, you know, disentangle those two things. Took it in the backyard, uh, took it all apart, cleaned it all up, uh, made sure it was just as you know, structurally sound as I needed it to be, uh, reattached it all back together, and then spray painted the entire thing uh, bright red, mm-hmm. this really gorgeous bright red color, and then mounted it to the fence line at the back of our backyard. Which we can see from the back of the house. Yeah, and it just sits there in the sun all day and it just looks like a monument to a sort of low-rent utopic future from the past. Ooh, 
The utopic future from the past. You know? I like that. Yeah, that's A sort of, monument to a utopic future from the past. That's kind of... I that, like that's it. That's kind of where my mind went. It's this good. I, remember, there was this idea, I think, in the 50s that technology would unleash humankind's potential would unlock doors for us as a species. Yeah. It hasn't 100% panned out that way. I mean, there's some of those things that are cool that we got sure. in that future vision. And there's some things that have a darker side. It's so <laughs> interesting seeing how technology is, has sort of unfolded in our lifetimes, right? Like we got simultaneously in the year 2020 yeah. or around this era, yeah. both the future that we were promised, and also the future that our parents were promised. What do you mean by that? So, like, our parents got promised, like, Dick Tracy wristwatches, and we have those. Yeah. You can buy a smartwatch from kind of anywhere, and they're yeah. really amazing. They do all the things, basically, that the Dick Tracy wristwatch did, and so much more, and it's so yeah. exciting and cool. We also have the dystopian technological future forecast in, for example, 1984. Ah, uh, yes. You know, the oppressive surveillance technologies, <laughs> the uh, being tracked everywhere you go, the constantly being targeted yeah. uh, with advertising, mm. or, and much worse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's weird. Like, we sort of have this narrowing timeline where both of those things, like one of them got accelerated, one of them was a little slower, and they both happened at the same time. So maybe this... Bright red monument in our backyard is uh, keeping the dream alive of uh, how technology might unleash like a really cool right. and uh, open future. Yes, because this <laughs> is from the era when yeah. that really was the promise. That was the you promise. know, yeah. like we're we're getting color television. There's somebody on the moon. Things are really going great yeah. for us humankind. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> Well, I love it. I think it looks great back there. And the, it's beautiful. We, I, we witnessed, as we were in the backyard yesterday evening, uh, a little hummingbird take a rest on one of the spindles of the antenna. It was the first bird I had seen land on it. Me too. And it, was, it stayed there forever. It was yes. very cute. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really great. I zoomed way, way in to uh, a take, a, take a photo of it because hummingbirds are small. Yeah. And I got a really cute, I got two cute photos and I sent one of them to my sister and she's like, Either my perspective is off or that's a huge hummingbird. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, it's a foot tall. It's terrifying. Imagine foot tall the hummingbird. The future we were promised. <laughs> Including foot tall hummingbirds. Oh no, that's oh, terrible. No. Um, yeah, and then so the other thing, the last thing that this uh, unexpected free time <laughs> that we mm. had this last week mm. opened up for us is we decided that we've been hearing forever that uh, from friends and family that we would really love the TV show Shit's Creek. Yeah. And so we finally started watching Shit's Creek. It's it's uh, it's a show that is it, they had their finale like the, the the last show of the final season sometime last year. Mm. So we're way behind yeah. and there are six seasons. Mm -hmm. So like we're like playing catch up. Mm -hmm. But oh my gosh, it's been so much fun. Yes, it like, has. Like just such a great brain vacation. Yeah. And I'm in love with the characters. Such good acting. Oh my God. Such good writing. So, so smart, so funny. Yes, yeah, so smart and so fun. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the other thing that we've been immersing ourselves in. Yeah, we're like halfway through season four. We're doing great work. <laughs> <laughs> Watching it like it's our job until three in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Honestly, like 
relaxing and tuning out does uh, kind of actually need to be our job. Like, especially me, like you were alluding to earlier, it's not something I'm great at. Yeah. It's easier for me to get immersed in work, especially because the thing I do for work is a single thing in life I love the most. Second thing, you're the first thing. Oh, thanks. But the, 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 the longest <laughs> non-Shannon love in my life has been music and specifically working on recordings. I'm in this amazing position in my life where that's what I get to do for work. So the yeah. lines can get really blurry for me. Yeah. Because it's the thing that I would be doing if I had the free time. And it, like, so yeah. it's hard sometimes to separate that out. Yeah. You know? But uh, you actually do need rest. Well, I was really inspired by our friend Chayton. So uh, we have this wonderful uh, couple music friend. They live down in San Diego, Chayton and Melissa Tierra. Uh, and they are classical piano players. They're also like uh, contemporary music artists. I've made a number of albums with them, mm -hmm. like rock album kind of things and synthesizer albums. Uh, it was Chayton's birthday last week and he started off his birthday week and he did a post about it, how like yesterday was the first day of his birthday week vacation. He's taking a week off for vacation and he listed the things that he did and one of them was practice piano for three hours. Oh, wow. Because like me... Music is the thing in his life that he loves the most. Yeah. And like me, when he has time that he gets to control 100% what he's using it for, yeah. like he chooses to use some of it to do music because uh -huh. he loves music. And that was really inspiring to me. That felt very validating. Like I don't have to purposefully stay away from my studio yeah. during vacation time. I just have to make sure that I'm not engaging with the thing that I love in a way that starts to feel stressful or puts burdens on me in a work-like way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That felt like a good distinction for me. Good. Because I think I've been kind of stressed out about the idea of, you know, having to like not do any music for two oh. weeks while I'm on vacation. And I was like, but I love music. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good perspective to have. It's yeah. good to know yourself in that way too. Yeah. So Chayton, if you're listening... Thanks for that little bit of inspiration. <laughs> that was awesome. actually really helpful to me. Very cool. So uh, what do you think? Is it a good time for a little break before we dig into the meatier parts of this episode? That sounds great. We'll be back in a minute. Back in a sec. into our ongoing conversation about individualism and its various toxicities. <laughs> so you know how we've mentioned before on the podcast, uh, and I'm sure you've had this experience in your own life, that once you have an idea that's kind of been percolating around your brain, you see things that relate to it everywhere. 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 Uh, we have been having that experience ourselves, as we have shared with you, and I had one this week. Uh, so I've been start, I've been getting this newsletter from this guy, Timothy Snyder. He's the person who wrote that little book called On Tyranny that came out like in early 2017, right at the beginning of the Trump administration. Yeah. Where he just like, it was 20 lessons from the 20th century. And he's a historian. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he studies fascism and authoritarian yeah. regimes. Mm -hmm. He's like one of the experts in the world on those things right. as, as a scholar. Yeah. And so right at the beginning of the Trump administration, he's just like, hey, here's just like 20 things that, that, regimes, authoritarian, totalitarian, and fascist regimes always do. 
like throughout history. Right. And I'll just bullet point them out for you. So just like it, it became like a little Trump administration checklist. Gosh, like yeah. How many of these things, like they had already gotten like eight of them done before they even took office. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. of the setup stuff that they were doing was like, oh God, they're so on a path here to totalitarianism. This is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a really helpful thing to ground myself in though, you know, in that kind of like idea of, if something's going to be bad, it's almost better to know ahead of time the scope of how bad it could be, just so you don't keep getting nasty surprises. Right, <laughs> you right. Know? It was helpful mm-hmm. in that way. Well, and also just to, to have a frame yeah. for understanding what yes. the heck was happening. Because, yes. like, that's part of, I think, the power of authoritarians is, like, it's constant gaslighting. Yeah. And so you're just like, the populace is just walking around confused mm-hmm. and angry. And, and therefore have, pliable. Right. And so to have a frame through which to view that, those happenings, like it just makes it, like you, you, you've you got something to hold on to. Yeah, it's true. You know what I mean? It's really true. To steady yourself. So Timothy Snyder's book was that uh, in 2017. Really, really helpful. And then... Uh, I just learned like a few weeks ago that he has a newsletter, like a Substack. Yeah. I, I hadn't known. Yeah. And he's an interesting thinker. And so I subscribed and I've been getting his newsletter ever since. And something that he wrote in the, uh, the issue of it that he put out a few days ago, just like hit me right across the face. Yeah. It was so striking. And, yeah. it, and it was this. And so he was talking uh, about how one of the connections between racism and climate change. So he's talking about climate change and racism, and how they connect. Yeah, basically the overarching like point was mm-hmm. the idea that like racism is keeping us from acting on climate change. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and that we need to deal with our racism if we're going to actually save our planet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so he was explicating this and he was saying that one of the connections between racism and climate change is what he calls the politics of pain. And he continues from there and he says... Racism is mobilized to tell white people that they are hardy individualists who, unlike blacks and others, do not need handouts. This is (laughs) sadopopulism. Leaders invite their voters to suffer on the understanding that other people will suffer more. Since the Reagan administration, this argument has been used against the welfare state and in this century has been used against healthcare reform. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like a two by four to the side of my head, yeah. you know, in terms of this conversation that we've been having in an ongoing way about how our individualism and our sense as Americans of individualism and what that means can be weaponized against us. Yeah. And to see this idea that, because like, you know that it's something we keep seeming to relearn over and over and over, at least I do, mm-hmm. is that every single thing in this country comes back to racism. All of the Gosh. problems that we have, all the foundational, uh, like, Predicates. Uh-huh. Uh, everything that this country was built upon had racism at the core of it. Yeah. I mean, by definition, that's how this country was built. That's where its wealth came from. It's like where every other thing has since come from in this country. And the idea that that racism is at the root of this idea of individualism was just like, oh my God, of course. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I I mean the it's I mean, racism itself is an example of hierarchy, right? And right. and we we explored last week in the podcast about how toxic individualism feeds into the structure of hierarchy. And hierarchy, as we've been exploring over the course of the last several weeks, is um is 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 a is a system that's unsustainable for the human race. Yeah, right. <laughs> we cannot we cannot we cannot sustain a society based on hierarchy. We're not built to do it. Um 
it will, it's doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and it's, it's not in our nature to do that either. Like, so like we're, we're working against our own nature to uphold a system that ultimately will fail all of us. But you're right in what like Timothy Snyder says here, the, there, there's a certain, uh, uh, part of the political, like class that have convinced people that, well, hierarchy's here and racism is one way in which we can reinforce hierarchy and sell the lie to a bunch of white folks that at least they're a little higher on the ladder than the rest of the people. Yeah. Right? Like you can sell this lie that 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 the hierarchy is working for you, yeah. even if you are actively suffering because of it. Yeah. You, know, you may at- be poor and have no health care, but at least you're not black. Right. That's kind of, that's the essential message right. that is getting sold to us. And right. it's not just a question of poverty, you know. Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a lot of it, but there's all different kinds of white people that can be predated upon with this. I think it's important to note here that racism itself was an invention of the wealthy class. Yeah, do you remember when we were listening to the Seeing White podcast? Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, the Seen on Radio podcast, the season two uh, series was called Seeing White, mm-hmm. and it was all about the idea of what is whiteness and how does it work? Right. Like, what's the history of it? Mm-hmm. That is when I learned that the idea of race itself Mm -hmm. was invented by the wealthy ruling class. I believe it was in Spain. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The idea of race was invented to justify policies that allowed for them to enslave other humans for the benefit of uh, and further enriching the wealthy ruling class. Right. And obviously that was adopted here in the United States yeah. in its inception mm-hmm. and the entirety of the wealth of this country was was built on the backs of stolen labor, of, sla- yeah. of slavery. Absolutely. And uh, Americans, uh, early Americans, sort of put a cool uniquely American spin on it, which is they realized, because like in America, we had two different uh, classes of forced laborers. Oh, we right. had black slaves, but we also had indentured Irish slaves. Indentured servitude. Indentured yeah. servitude for the Irish, right? Uh, and the the way that, uh, this, that slave owners, landowners, the wealthy class in early America made that work for them is they used racism to divide the working class and pit them against one another as opposed to them banding together and looking upward at the people who had their boot on their neck. Should we call them the working class or were they the slave class? Yeah, well, <laughs> at that point in time, yeah. Well, they were yeah. the ones doing the work. Well, uh, fair, fair point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this idea of race itself and the idea of racism, meaning that, that, that there are, you know, these ways in which we view people of different races as unequal, yeah. uh, that, that that idea has been used forever to benefit, uh, to, to justify policies that benefit the wealthy ruling class. And, and the idea that this, this idea of racism is sort of like, I, I understand it from that view as being something, it's, it's a lie <laughs> that that we can be susceptible to with varying degrees of efficiency, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And um, in, in the case of like, like you were saying, the beginning of the founding of the country, you know, when, you know, t- to divide Irish um, indentured servants from black 
uh, slaves mm -hmm. and to keep them from finding solidarity with each other and too much power in that solidarity, you know, dividing those, those folks out by race mm -hmm. and telling them that they had different places on the hierarchy divided that power, divided that solidarity and kept the power and kept the money flowing upward toward the wealthy ruling class. Yeah. And, but that, that we're susceptible to that when we buy into the, the idea that we exist in hierarchy, uh, and, that, and then that's our fate. <laughs> mm -hmm. we, and we buy into hierarchy when we think of ourselves too much as individuals, right? Yeah. Well, that, that, like, like I'm out for myself, I've got to climb the ladder for myself, and that, that you know, we, we accept that, that hierarchy when we, when we don't explore the essence of our being as, a society, as part of a society beyond this whole idea of just it's me, 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 and only me. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. it does. Uh, the lie of racism. Also, uh, you, and, you and I were talking about this as we were kind of like sketching out this, uh, you know, the bullet points for this episode. I mean, we arrived at the idea that the lie of racism works on people who don't have an understanding of their own worth and, and of their place in the human ecosystem. Yeah, so here's, like, last week we were talking about this idea that like, doing our own internal work, like yeah. doing the work inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. We talked lots about lo like love and belonging last week and yeah. how like doing the work to get to a place of understanding and accepting and really, really believing that we are, that we are worthy of love and belonging, yeah. that that's essential work to creating a just society. And I think that, that what this is telling us is that like doing our own internal work on racism is part of that work. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's important. Anti-racism work is definitely a systemic issue and we need to work together to tear down systems and structures that perpetuate that inequality, but it's also internal work. Like right. it's also doing fearless introspection and unlearning of the things that we've learned just from existing in this society. Like we've got to undo the messages that we've grown up with and that we've, that we've internalized, you know, that, that requires doing that internal work. Like it is required work if we want to create a just society. And I think part of that work, part of the work, gosh, just in general, is getting to a place where we understand our own worthiness. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, when we, when we don't have an understanding of our own worthiness as humans, that's when we're susceptible to lies that divide us and make us unhappy and that make us angry and make us fearful and make us more susceptible to buying into this system of hierarchy. Oh, absolutely. In the same way that ads work on people who can be made to believe that they need something yes. to fill an empty space inside of themselves. Yes. Racism works in the exact same way. Yes. Racism is targeted at people who can be made to believe that there is something missing in themselves or missing in their life that racism can fill. Well, so here's the thing. Like, I have this belief that... If a person does not, if a person is, has not gotten to the place in their, in their life where they can say, that they can believe fully in their own worthiness mm -hmm. of love and belonging. If, if you're a person who doesn't believe in your own worthiness of love, that you are worthy of love and you are worthy of belonging, the discomfort that that 
um, that lack of belief creates in your life. Like we, you, we as humans have to find some way to displace that. Yeah. And so many people in, in just trying to displace the, com- the discomfort of feeling unworthy. Mm-hmm. Or maybe disconnected societally yes. or whatever it might be. One of the ways to displace that is to buy right into this handy lie that's being peddled all the time that, well, there are some people that are further down the yeah. rung, rungs of the ladder yeah. than you are. Here is a, here's where you fit in. Here's what the structure is. Here's where you fit into it. And there are people below you. Your life might not be perfect, but at least you're not. And then fill in whatever exactly. ethnic group is most recently arrived to our country. Yeah, as we're speaking, yeah, in, is a, of a racial hierarchy for sure. And But I think that also that's not satisfying. It's totally temporary, that feeling of power over because of your place on the on the ladder, you know, like it's not something that actually solves the issue of feeling unworthy or like you don't belong or you're feeling disconnected. It's a temporary, a temporary fix to that issue. Similarly to like the products that you might buy by the ads that make you feel that kind of unworthiness. Or if you look at this you know? from a recovery framework, similarly to the the drink you take in or the drug you take in yes. or the, the porn you consume every day or the unhealthy relationships that you find yourself embroiled yes. in. All of those things are temporary ways of making ourselves feel better, of, mm-hmm. of papering over that hole inside of us mm-hmm. for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, but then like the paper tears, like the, you know, the hole's still there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's not a permanent solution. And there, it, there is never a permanent solution to these kinds of holes inside of us, these kinds of feelings inside of us until we do the work. And the work itself is ongoing. It's not like, I, w- I was just reading in my daily meditations today, actually, this mm-hmm. idea, like he was using the idea of, um, of blinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like if you're, you know, sitting in a room, sitting outside, whatever, your eyes blink every once in a while. You go, you go dark and then you open your eyes again mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in a similar way. And using that metaphor, even if we are sort of awakened to and open to the, the things that we need to be doing to doing our own work, our internal work, there are going to be moments when we blink. Mm-hmm. Right, like, and it happens all the time. Like, of course. we're not. It's not like you reach this level of awakening and you're like, I have arrived. No. It is a daily. These are these are daily practices of of getting more in touch with our own humanity and our own worthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. A, there's no destination here, <laughs> you know. And none of us gets it perfect. But I think that the more of us that get on that journey and do it together. The more, sh- the, the better shot we have at creating something better here for ourselves and each other, you mm-hmm. know? Because I, I have this fundamental belief that, that I just have sort of developed over time. And it, honestly, my, a lot of my, uh, the reading I've done in anti racism work has really fueled this idea too that, that when, I, when I accept and embrace my own humanity, that's when I can accept and embrace others' humanity. Yeah, right. Right? Like, uh, that's what shame, <laughs> shame keeps us from connecting. Shame keeps us from seeing other people's humanity. So when I can deal with my own shame and I can deal with my own stuff that's keeping me from being in touch with my own worthiness, mm-hmm. when I've dealt with that, then I have the ability to see others in that same light also. Yeah. Like it opens something up in the way, it, like me heal, me doing healing work for me opens up my ability to see other people in their full humanity as well and extend to them 
that sense of worthiness that I have understood for myself. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And as a counterpoint, you know, like I know in my experience when I am living in scarcity or unworthiness, yeah. I tend to feel more self-protective and less empathetic toward others. Absolutely. I'm and probably more susceptible to the lies of racism or what other whatever other lie someone's trying to sell you to keep you in your place in the in the hierarchy or to keep you isolated in your individualism. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it's it's really it's really interesting. Like I, the more we sort of tease this apart, the more I become convinced that like the number one thing that we can each be doing, not only for ourselves, but for the world, <laughs> is to get serious about a daily practice to do our work, to <laughs> tackle the stuff inside of us that's keeping us from feeling worthy of love and belonging. That's the stuff that's gonna make us live lives that are individually more contented Mm -hmm. and joyful, Mm -hmm. but it's also the stuff that allows us to see humanity, to see others in a way that will allow for us to build something better here together. Yeah. You know, which it sounds really powerful to me, like that we have the power to do that. You know, like we may not be able to, you know, none none of this change is swift. Change is never swift, but like we may not have the power to make quick changes in like leadership and government, people who are making decisions for us overall, you know, like we do have some power in that. We, we can vote and, you know, we can influence our political system in a democracy. And sometimes our votes even count. <laughs> Knock on wood that we get to keep yeah. that democracy. But you know what I mean? Like we, there, is, there is involvement in that and that's an important thing for us to be engaged in. But when I think about it, like oftentimes I feel very powerless about the crap that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. But when I think about what we've been talking about here today, like I actually have the power to do something about that. If the building blocks for a more just, peaceful and equitable world, if the building block is me doing my work and you doing your work, then we have something we can do tangibly to start making things better. You know what? I, does that make sense? Oh, like, I feel empowered yeah. is what I'm trying to say. The question is like, how do you get that motivation and that sense of personal responsibility out to millions and millions and millions and millions of people when all the prevailing messages that they're receiving are, this isn't something you can handle on your own, but don't worry, we have solutions for you. Right. Or here's a here's this, you know, these ideologies that will just check the boxes for you, like racism or patriarchy yeah. or whatever it might be. You're right. That sounds, but I think the way we do it is we, I mean, how, how do people get sober, Jamie? Like how, how do people, how do you as a sober alcoholic influence others to become sober? I, well, I wait for them to get to a point of incomprehensible demoralization mm-hmm. and ask for help. Right. But, and then I provide input as needed. But also I watch you uh, in your life, um, talking about your own sobriety, That's sharing true. with others your experience. Yep. And I have heard you share with me that many people, countless people have messaged you mm-hmm. when they've reached that point for themselves. They've reached out to you specifically because they have said, I've watched you for years, share yeah. your experience of how you've gotten sober mm-hmm. and I could use some help. Mm-hmm. 
right? So like, I think the answer to your question is how do you convince millions of people? Like there isn't really any convincing to be done. But what we can do is remain faithful to doing our own work. Yeah, right. And, and, we, and we can model it publicly for other people and, and share it. Be there for them if and when they decide they want some of it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because obviously we can't choose it. We yeah. can't choose doing, doing personal work is personal. Like you can't choose it for anybody else. But like you can, you can engage in your own work in a way that, that is passionate and, and open-handed, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that, that you're willing to share it, you know, with people and willing to, to share your experience in terms of how you've struggled and, and the victories that you've experienced and just sharing your own journey, sharing your story. That's the power of sharing our stories with each other, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we give people an opportunity to see themselves in our struggles and in our victories and hopefully a little bit of motivation to stay on track with their own healing or get on track with their own healing, if yeah. it, might, it might be that, you know? Yeah. Okay, so if we've gotten to this place where we have identified that like, if change is going to happen, however slim the odds might be, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we make like <laughs> sweeping change society-wide. Yeah. But then if, that, if, the, if the way that that happens is by each of us committing to our own work and like little magnets drawing other people along with us to do the work together. Well, <laughs> you I know? mean, that's how that works, right? Like, like, like I was saying, like, when you asked me, like, how do I help people with sobriety? It's like, first... I wait for them to approach me. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's it, you know? Yeah, but they've like approached you. You, you can't be- want something for somebody else. Absolutely. But they've approached you because you have been open with your own experience. You've shared it, you know? Like, and you've been diligent to stick with it, you know? Like, that's that's what, that's one of the things that can draw people to, uh, to doing the work for themselves is seeing it in somebody else, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's something that we can do. And, 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 and the more that we do like little magnets, like attract other people to this path, mm-hmm. the more we have community with which to do the work, you know? Cause like, like we were talking about, like, this is not, this is not a steady path. It's not like you've, you know, you've gotten to a place of understanding your own worthiness of love and belonging <laughs> and then you're done. No, no, no. Hey, brush off my hands. My work here is done. It's continual. Yeah. And the more people we have to do that work alongside the just the easier it is <laughs> you know like yeah. to, when we have each other to do that but then i mean like attracts like mass mass attracts mass you mm-hmm. know what i mean like gravity is a thing yeah. <laughs> you know like that that this is it may, it may be very slow a very slow kind of change but it is i think maybe the only way we get to a more evolved society <laughs> I mean, evolution has always been slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's and that's also important to remember too. You know, yeah. it's it's really easy in societal moments like this to feel negative about things. Yeah. You know, because right now, like all the loudest voices are super authoritarian in nature, and that's troubling. You know, but it doesn't mean that there's not still a quiet majority of people who do want to do the work, mm-hmm. who do want to improve themselves on the inside, who want to who who want to create conditions inside themselves that are more favorable for communing with other humans and forming like a really tightly knit, like well-bonded society. Yeah. You know? Immediately after we finished last week's podcast, I had the thought... We've been doing a lot of talking in this this episode too. 
we've been doing a lot of talking about like doing your internal work. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, what does that mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> what does that look like? Practically speaking, what does that look like? And so, I, you know, I thought it would be like, I can't define what that means for others necessarily, but I can define what that has meant and what that means currently for me in my life. Yeah, me too. You know? And do maybe you, people would listen and relate to it a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. I was, do you want to start? Do you want I me mean, to start? The, the obvious thing that you and I both identified is that it looks a lot like recovery work, you know? Yeah. And what that means is... It means that there is a systematic approach to it, you mm -hmm. know, uh, like a formalized, structured uh, way of like exhuming your own thoughts and fears and hopes and desires and making sense of them in a way where you can separate out like what you can control in the world and what you can't control in the world, what you can control in your own life and what you can't control. And then like making an affirmative decision to let go of the stuff that you can't control, not to keep holding on to it and building resentments or shame or, you know, other negative attachments around it. Mm -hmm. But instead, let just, you know, making a commitment to letting go of the stuff you can't control and then really doubling down on the stuff that you can control, which is to say how you think about things, your own biases, your own reactions to things, mm -hmm. you know? This idea that we're not responsible for the first thought we have about something, but we are responsible for the second thought. Mm -hmm. So like identifying thought patterns that you have, like anyone who's been in recovery of any kind, like AA or Overeaters Anonymous or CODA or like whatever your problematic attachment is the point of it is that it it's the answer it's the wrong answer to a question that you have inside your mind <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean mm -hmm. um and the question usually is something along the lines of how do i feel better how do i get away from this way that I'm feeling, mm. you know? And the first thought for an alcoholic is, well, I drink. Right. Because that's immediate and you feel better immediately, mm -hmm. you For know? a codependent, the first thought is, I seek out the approval and praise of others. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you can do some quick manipulative little things to get that and you exactly. get that little dopamine hit and you feel better for the moment, you know? That's right. the first thought. That's the thought that we need to be able to like intercept and look at real critically and mm -hmm. be like, no, that's how my brain works, but that's not the healthy thing for me in this mm -hmm. situation. Actually, what the healthy thing is in, for me in this situation is, and then whatever that blank is, is what you've arrived at in your life as being the thing that, that addresses your need in a healthy way, you right, know? Right. And so, like, I think that really what doing your own internal work looks like writ large, no matter what the work is, is looking at what your impulses are, your reactions to things, and seeing which ones are unhealthy and figuring out healthier ways like to replace them in your own life mm -hmm. with stuff that actually works better for you and for the people around you. Yeah, that's definitely been part of it for me. Mm -hmm. I think in my own my own recovery work led me to uh, um, an interest when I when I first uh, found out about um, Brene Brown's work. Yeah, like there was a real like. There's like a flashing red light on her work. Like, this is the next thing you need to learn about, Shannon. You know, and so I've like, I've done like a deep dive into her work in the years since, you know, learning about it. And for me, like her work is all around um, the ideas of, of shame and vulnerability. And honestly, I think that, that shame is at the core of a lot of folks who... Uh, are are doing recovery work or who are in need of recovery work? Yeah, you know what I mean. Who aren't but should be doing <laughs> recovery work. Yeah, because like like the and and the shame. You know, part of part of recovery work is 
releasing some of that shame by making amends, yeah. <laughs> you know, by, and, and, and by staying on top of doing a, a personal inventory on a daily basis to keep your, your, your soul, your conscious clean, your conscious clear, you know, mm-hmm. conscience clear, you know, and, 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 so that that stuff doesn't pile up so that, so that the stuff that, that, you know, the, the, the tiny little like, you know, cross words or, you know, bad actions toward others or negative thoughts about myself. When those pile up, they become a shame ball inside me that, that makes me start behaving badly toward myself and others, you know, and including like, as a member of society, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Listen, like for me, dealing with shame has been a core part of, of that. That when I'm carrying shame, when yeah. I'm, I, I can't both carry shame and also hold an understanding of my, my inherent worthiness of mm-hmm. love and belonging. Yeah, right. Those are incompatible. Yeah. And so I think part of me, part of the doing the work for me has looked like, you know, getting getting serious about like reading as much as I can from works like Brene Brown. Her work is like transformational. If you're looking for a place to start, go get yourself the gifts of imperfection and start reading it tomorrow. That's the name of a book by Brene Brown. Thank you. You know, like that's that's a great place to start. Um, you know, but but doing the work for me in in that sense means, you know, following those little lines of curiosity, like, oh, maybe I should learn more about what shame and vulnerability mean in my life. Maybe I should learn more about how to heal myself, um, you know, and unlearn the unhealthy mental patterns that I have bought into for a lot of my life and relearn new ones. And I do that by like reading, reading books by Brene Brown. Another book I read last year that, that really ticked that box for me was Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Mm -hmm. You know, it was her own personal story that she was sharing, but I found myself really hearing a lot of my own story in it and finding ideas for how to peel off another layer of stuff I need to unlearn about unhealthy thought patterns, unhealthy behaviors and replace them with something that's good for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. that's, that's, that's healthy and good going forward. So like re- doing the work for me means like seeking those kinds of things out yeah. and, and digging in and actually thinking about what they mean for my life, yeah. you know? And you know, you and I were trying to like figure out what this stuff is called, like when we were talking about it, because we wanted to say like, <laughs> right. we wanted to be able to like wrap it up with a bow and be like, you should read self-help books. Because uh, like when we were kids, that's what they would be called. They would, yeah. they would have been called self-help or pop psychology. Right. All these things that Shannon is talking about. But neither of those labels feels really like it honors, like they both seem kind of trivial. Yes. Like, like, like they trivialize like this stuff. But you know, it's people who are also on the path, yeah. you know? And they don't just have to be writing self-help stuff either, you know? Right, like right, right. Brene and Glennon Doyle, that stuff is kind of self-helpy. You know, it's like, here is my experience and maybe you can use it to help yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, you I can mean, see yourself in it. Brene Brown actually does this from a an academic point of view too. Yeah. So she's got that as well. But mm-hmm. yes, you're right. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. But it can also be people like this Timothy Snyder guy whose thing that I read yeah. here, you know what I mean? Like, he's a scholar. He's... He's just interested in using his gray matter to <laughs> to drill down on the human condition like via his 
area of personal expertise right. and just trying to find connections and seeing how things work and how they fit together, you right. know? And like reading him is inspiring to me. We have our, our friend uh, Whitney Fishburn mm. uh, who writes uh, the documental and and sold uh, newsletters. newsletters. They're like sub stacks. I never, newsletter always sounds so weird to me. I know. You know, it's like someone's, uh. like when I think of newsletter, I think of like someone who's selling soap. Like <laughs> I, I get the Dr. Bronner's newsletter. Oh. But what is <laughs> documental? It's like, it's like a thought piece, but it comes once yeah, a week. I yeah. don't know. Let's say a newsletter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, I, I get that. And it's just like a different way of looking at how the world is working from someone else's perspective. And like, if you look at enough other thinkers' perspectives on things, what it does is it helps you inform your own perspective. I've- yeah, and I think for me, what the, the criteria for who I'm going to seek out to learn from like that are people who are authentically engaged, honestly engaged in their own in their own growth and healing. Yeah, like that's, that's those are the people I'm going to be seeking out. Um, and and honestly, it's going to probably not be people who claim to have all the answers no. either. You know, it's going to be people who are who are. Doing who are doing the work and continuing to do the work and knowing that it's going to be a lifelong process of of unlearning and learning and and continuing to heal yeah the stuff inside and the anti racism work is included in that too yeah of you course. know like I this is one of the reasons why I really appreciate Ibram um, Kendi's book and I'm so excited that we're reading this one next in our book and movie club mm-hmm. is that he really approaches this whole book from the perspective of of him undoing his own racism. Yeah. You know? And so it's not like he's like telling you what to do. It's not like this didactic thing. It's him sharing his own experience and maybe hopefully you can relate to it and learn something from yes, it. Yes, it comes from a place of humility and healing and growth. Yeah. It's, it's really great. You know, I, the, I was thinking about this question also, like what is doing the work? And so like for me, it's definitely seeking out other people. But for me, also my creative work mm-hmm. is part of me doing my work, my own internal work, yeah. you know, like my songwriting and my like building of stories and storytelling for the shows that we do mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like that, that's absolutely part of my, uh, like I, that's, that's me like internalizing the stuff I'm absorbing from other people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and making it my own, mm-hmm. you know, like it is, it's like the digestion process. I'm eating food that other people have prepared for me <laughs> in the form of these books I'm reading and podcasts I'm listening to. And I, you know, ideas that people have, I'm eating that meal that they've prepared for me. And my digestive system is, is making it part of my body. That process for me is when I'm engaging those ideas in my songwriting and my storytelling and things like that. Like that's, that's me, me making making it part of my myself, which I think is an important part of the process for me, you know, like engaging in some kind of work that, um, that that's not just intake, but also just integration, I guess, into my life. And Does that so, make sense? And so to really draw this metaphor out, your, al- no, your no. albums are like little poops. No, I knew you were going to go there. Fertilize other people's oh my seeds of ideas. Gosh, no. Oh my, I mean, I, the biologist in me appreciates that, but yeah, no. Yeah, right, that's where you're going. No. You, you did this. <laughs> I just made it explicit. Oh my God. 
Oh my God. But yeah, no, uh, yeah, your, po- your point's super well taken. I mean, and that's such a nifty thing to be able to do. And you know, there are other people in our sphere. I mean, there are people in our Misfit Stars group who also use their creative disciplines yeah. as means of exploring things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, we have uh, a person in our Misfit Stars group who is dealing with some childhood trauma through poetry. Yeah, for sure. And it's really, really powerful to see that part of her journey, you Mm -hmm. know? And it's really similar to what you're talking about. It's how she processes and integrates ideas on her path to being a better version of herself, you know? To healing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to healing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you and I have both spoken about daily gratitude practice, and that is absolutely part of what doing your own internal work looks like. Oh my gosh, yes. And just the idea of having a daily practice around your internal work in general, you know? This idea of like the unexamined life is not worth living, you know? Yeah. where the rubber meets a road with that sort of idea, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. you can't just do the work like once every month or twice a year. Yeah. It's really important to have it be sort of an ongoing, constant part of your life. Like, think about an exercise routine. You wouldn't exercise twice a year. You would exercise three times a week, five times a week, yes. six times a week. You would do it so it's a part of your life in a constant way. Yes. And then you look back two years later and you're like, wow, I've made a lot of progress. And that's how it actually works. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work otherwise. That's like, right. Yeah. Well, and the, and the exact same thing is true with mindfulness stuff, you know? Yeah. You can't be mindful two, three, four times a year, you know, a couple times a month and expect to see results. Right. You can't get in touch with it. Like, you can't do AA one time. You can't work the 12 steps at the beginning of your sobriety and then never be in touch with step work again. Right. You know, like that's just not how that works. Mm-hmm. Like I still to this day in a very mindful and conscious way live in the, they're what, what's called the maintenance steps, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. like the, if you were to look at a flow chart of how step work goes, it's one to two to three to and all the way down to 12. Mm-hmm. But then if you imagine at 12, there's like a little flow chart line that goes back up and points at 10. The loops back, that loops up, back yeah. up. And that's how that kind of works, you know? Like yeah. every so often, it can be a good idea, particularly if you're at an inflection point or feel something inside of you, mm. to go back and do all the steps again, yeah. you know? Uh, I did it sort of halfway into where I'm at right now with sobriety, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I did it at the beginning, of course, and I did it sort of halfway through. And, you know, I could imagine in a few years, I'd be due for another full trip through again, you mm-hmm. know? But, you know, you live in that 10, 11, 12. They're called the maintenance steps yeah. because that's how you maintain right. your spiritual condition. Right. They say in AA that we are granted a daily reprieve, a daily mm. reprieve contingent upon maintenance of our spiritual condition. Well, what is maintenance? Well, it's living in that self-reflection and quick amends mm-hmm. and being of service. And like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just that. It, that's how you, on a daily basis, keep yourself on a good path. You know, yeah. when they see we have a daily reprieve, what that means is, you know, if you want to feel good tomorrow, we'll do the thing you did today. And if you felt good t- today, and it was because you did your spiritual maintenance. We'll do yeah. the same thing tomorrow and you keep doing it. Yeah. You don't get to do it today and expect that you're going to feel good a month from now. Right. You got to be doing it all the days between now and a month from now. Yeah. Otherwise stuff's going to build up. Yes. It's like deferred maintenance on your car. Like yes. you can let go for a while, but eventually your car is going to break down. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I was describing earlier. When I let that stuff go, then my shame ball grows. Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's like a snowball and I have to deal with that before it gets too big or else it overtakes everything. Yeah. That's exactly And I'm in a it. bad place. <laughs> and you know, and I alluded to something a moment ago that I think is also a part of what, what doing this internal work looks like, service work, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, being of service in the world. It's interesting how many people who have lives that 
that look to me like a good life, like a life really worth having and aspiring to, uh-huh. have some element of service work in their life, you know, of yeah. giving back. Yeah. I, and you see this like in the randomest places. Like I read this magazine called Tape Op. It's a magazine mm-hmm. that's, it's it's a recording magazine. But for like independent people, you know, um, people who have unusual career paths, I am one, you know, yeah. so I relate to this a lot. Yeah. There was this, it's mostly interviews with engineers and producers and whatnot. And there was this amazing interview with this woman, Linda Perry. I'm sure most people would know who she is. <laughs> she, When we were kids, she had this uh, song with a group called Four Non Blondes uh, that was a big, huge hit. And she was a songwriter for that and a singer. But she's been this amazing producer. She wrote, she wrote like worldwide hits, wrote and produced worldwide hits for like Pink and Christina Aguilera and like all of these people. Oh my gosh, she's, you know so many of her songs. You know yeah. so <laughs> many of her songs. Yeah. And like she says in this interview that I was reading just like yesterday, how what's important to her, like the, the center of what she considers her work is, is being of service to people mm. and how she can help other people do their thing, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting just like to see that popping up in what's ostensibly an interview about record production, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that the, the attitude of being of service to others is a, is a practice mm-hmm. um, that like, like, like gratitude. Okay. So we've, we've been having this sort of like ongoing conversation in our Misfit Stars group in this one thread. And also we had this conversation on the podcast last week too, that that a gratitude practice is something that you practice at. You show up for yeah. doing the practice. It's not something you wait to feel. No. You know? And I think service work is the same way. Like you you show up to be of service and it's not like, you know, like gratitude, it's not about like the the quality of things on the list you've made that you're grateful for. No. That's not the point. No. The point is that you have brought your mind to pay attention to these good things. Yeah. And that, that that what that does on the inside of you is what's important about the practice. It's yeah. not it's not the things on your list, whatever. No. It's the it's the having done that activity, how it's changing the wiring in your brain by just doing that activity, right? And service work is similar. It's not about it's not even about the the work itself <laughs> necessarily. No. It's not about the person to whom the work is directed. The point of showing up for a service practice is the rewiring it's doing in your brain to set aside your own needs and desires at that moment to serve somebody else. Yeah. Like I think that doing that kind of work, like like gratitude, like doing gratitude work produces joy. I think doing that kind of service work produces in us maybe. I'm just guessing here based on my own experience. Like, but I think doing service work for other people, what it does inside for me is give me more of a sense of belonging. It gives me more of a sense of, of um, a feeling uh, worthy of belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that the, maybe that's, that's maybe the, the wiring that's happening when I do service work, you know? Absolutely. Bonus is that someone got to experience you know, my help or my, my, you know, outward, whatever I did, I, whatever I did to be of service to somebody, you know, that like maybe, helped somebody else. Like maybe you were helpful, but it's completely not the point. It's, it's not the point. It's, it's secondary. Yeah. Like you hope to be helpful. Right. But the point of it is that you're engaging in the behavior because it makes you be a better version of yourself. Yes. Yeah. 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 So interesting. I would be curious to know what our listeners, uh, how our listeners define doing their own work. Like, I would love to hear from you if you're listening to this, you know, and you've got some ideas about like what doing the work, I'm putting scare quotes around that, doing the work looks like 
in your life. Yeah. I would love to hear what that looks like. Because obviously I can't prescribe this for anyone else. And the way it looks for me isn't going to look like it looks for Jamie or anybody else. You know, like we're, we're each going to have our own sort of like path on that. But I would, I would love to hear what that looks like for other people. How do you change the wiring in your brain? How do you do that? How do you do it? Hmm. Let us know. Yeah. We would love to know. Yeah, that'd be great. You can send me an email, shannon at misfitstars.com. You could also send me one. I'm Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at misfitstars.com. Yeah. I spell it out because there's multiple ways. Do you get sick of having to spell your name? No, it's fine. Okay. I like my name. It's okay. It's short. It's easy to spell. That's, yeah. You know? Unless it's spelled wrong. It's not like Copernicus. You know, like, I got to spell it again. That's like 12 letters. Who named me this? This is terrible. I'm glad you're not named Copernicus either. No. That would be weird. I don't even think there's like a really good nickname for that. Um, Nick, maybe? That Nick. Would be that would be it. Yeah, would be. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think maybe we've reached the end of this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, you know when you're starting to think up nicknames for imaginary names that you don't have. But probably you said what you need to say. I think we did. But yeah. thanks for the good talk. That was really great. Yeah, you too. So uh, there you go, people. What do you do to change the wiring in your brain? How do you do it? We'd love to know. Yeah, and um, we'll be back again next week with who knows what. I mean, something will pop up. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I hope that you'll join us again. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Yes, if you're in the Misfit Stars group, uh, please join us for the Misfit Stars Zoom Meetup. It is this coming Sunday, Sunday. the 29th. Yeah. That's at 3 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. UK, 8 a.m. the next day in Australia. And 6 p.m. on the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm angling. Did you get that? Did you write that all down? I'm, okay, I'm angling for the Australian participants. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, guys. We'll uh, be back next week. And until then, uh, take care of yourselves mm -hmm. and be good to each other. Yeah. And we'll see you soon. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.